You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, perspectives on foreign affairs from the Irish Times Network of Foreign Correspondents. I'm Patrick Smith. In Israel, a love story between an Israeli Jew and a Palestinian Muslim, love across the communities, their own Romeo and Juliet, has topped the list of bestsellers after Israel's education ministry refused to allow the book on the school curriculum. The raging controversy is about much more than the book. It's a battle about how the Jewish community defines itself. I'll be speaking to Safir Cohen, the director of a German think tank in Israel, about what it means. Taiwan votes in the new presidential and parliamentary elections on January the 16th, when the China-friendly ruling Kuomintang party is expected to be defeated by the Democratic Progressive Party. Clifford Coonan, our Beijing correspondent, is travelling back to the island to report on a hard-fought election. But first to Germany and our correspondent Derek Scally on the fallout from the violence against women on New Year's Eve in Cologne. Over 600 women have now brought complaints in Cologne and Hamburg, 40% for sexual assault and several for rape. And the slow burner start of this story has now turned into a major political fallout for Merkel. The experience on the night of running gauntlet of hundreds of groping men was horrific, as one woman conveyed in her testimony. All of a sudden, these men around us began groping us. They touched our behinds and grabbed between our legs. They touched us everywhere. I wanted to grab my friend and get out of the crowd. When I turned around, one guy grabbed my bag and ripped it off my body. I thought to myself that if we stay here in this crowd, they could kill us. They could rape us and nobody would notice. I thought we simply had to accept it. There was no one around us who helped or who was in a position to help. All I wanted was to get out. I was scared that it wouldn't leave this crowd alive. I was scared that if someone showed up with a knife, I could be raped in the middle of the street. Derek, the latest development is a number of attacks on migrants in Cologne. Um, what, what has happened there? Yes, we seem to have seen the first uh, vigilante revenge attacks, police seem to believe. Um, this happened on Sunday night uh, when, uh, as far as I know, four to five different groups uh, of, of men seem to have coordinated meetings uh, over the internet, over Facebook, to go into Cologne and uh, tidy up the town. And they seem to be gangs of uh, bikers and doormen and people with a background in organized crime in Cologne. And there were Syrians, there were um, Pakistanis, people basically were just picked out and chased through the city, sought protection in larger groups of, um, of uh, non-nationals or asylum seekers, and then the group was attacked. And police are very worried that um, having failed uh, the people on uh, New Year's Eve, that people are now thinking they have, to, they have a right or a, an obligation to take things into their own hands, which, of course, is a, a spiral uh, which could easily get out of control. And, of course, there's big uh, street celebrations next week, isn't there, in Cologne? This is it. Cologne is a big Catholic town. Before, before Lent kicks in, they start this uh, carnival season, and this is the happiest, maddest time of the year. And uh, many people are wondering, uh, is it go- going into a, a large group of people in Cologne a good idea at the moment? But many people in Cologne, uh, the sort of a sensible middle, middle ground uh, with two very radicalized fringes, left and right, the sensible middle ground is saying, yes, of course we go, this is what makes Cologne Cologne, this is what makes Cologne so worthwhile a place to live. And we're not going to have that taken from us by uh, groups of drunken asylum seekers or right-wing extremists who have pounced on this as, a, as proof of their warnings uh, all along. 
Now, what's the state of the investigation uh, of the New Year's Eve uh, uh, violence and the prospect of charges? And what, what do we know now about those accused? Um, well, the status at the moment is uh, anyone who bought the, today's mass market bill, top right, was confronted with an entire page of um, just very brief descriptions of the uh, complaints filed. And it was just an absolutely shocking, one of the most shocking things I can remember seeing in the newspaper, just like paragraph after paragraph after paragraph of, of people being grabbed, people being groped, people complaining to police of their, of their mobile phones being taken. And this over an entire page. And, of course, it's a, it's, uh, it's, it reads, reads like a charge sheet against asylum seekers, but it also reads like a charge sheet against the police and, of course, against the media because there were some complaints that this took a long time, too long for it to become uh, the big story it has now become. Some media organizations in, in Germany have put up their hand and say, yeah, we were a little understaffed over the, over the holidays, but it wasn't necessarily a, it wasn't necessarily a ideological issue that we're trying to keep this out of the news. But the current state of the affairs is yesterday there was a, there was a, on Monday there was a, a hearing in the state parliament in North Rhine-Westphalia and the interior minister said this is a police failure. They were offered reinforcements. They refused to take them and they made things worse after the events by playing down what happened uh, and uh, insisting that they, they hadn't been overwhelmed when it was quite clear that they had. So what we now have is the police literally just working through hundreds, hundreds of um, criminal complaints. Um, the, obviously, the, the sexual attacks have priority, but this is going to roll on and roll on. And, and uh, what we're already seeing. Presumably, it's very yeah. difficult to identify uh, th those responsible. This is it. Most of the most of the criminal complaints are against unknown, and um, because there were just so many people uh, in a very small space that women, even if they were near police, they said they went over to the police and said that man over there groped me, and then the police would say which man, and of course the person was gone. So they have video uh, footage, and uh, they're studying that, and they say they've got about uh, about a dozen people already identified, and they're going through. Um, they're trying to trap, but of course, having a face of somebody on on. Uh, on video footage does not necessarily mean you know who they are, so it's it's another mess. And um, police are obviously on the gun to try and to try and reclaim trust lost. And of course, as you said, with next week's carnival coming, um, the the mood in in Cologne, but also in Germany, it's just a, a, a it's like a pressure cooker. It's a very radicalized mood in the media. Um, it's two extremes fighting each other, the, the far right saying, we told you so, the extreme left saying, um, we cannot claim that all asylum seekers are, are potential rapists. That's just ridiculous. And uh, in the middle is uh, Chancellor Merkel and her refugee policy. And has there been any response from others in the migrant community? Yes, there has. Um, just yesterday I saw at cent the central station here in Berlin, um, asylum seekers just spontaneously bought flowers and they stood in front of the station and they just handed out flowers to women and they apologized. They said, this is not, those people aren't us. Um, this is not how we treat our women. And um, just because a woman smiles at me, I don't believe I have a right to grope her. So just trying to differentiate, um, which really has been strongly lacking uh, here. It's either there's been in the last months, asylum seekers are all saints or demons. And this, of course, there's the mix that you get in any group of population. Uh, and some asylum seekers have decided, right, uh, just like after an Islamist attack, Muslims sometimes feel they have to defend uh, the indefense this is what's happening now that in Berlin and in other cities, spontaneous actions. But of course, there are huge questions about 
who are who is Germany taking in, and can these people um, be can these people be uh, taught to adapt to European values at all? And I mean that, of course, is the critical question: is Merkel's immigration strategy is it now completely in, in shreds? She famously said, "We can handle this, and we will handle this." But now that doesn't sound. Uh, uh, sounds like an empty, empty promise, and she she's been yes. seen as increasingly isolated. Um, yes and no. I mean, she has a very hard line interior minister, and he was pushing for a much harder line than her over the years, but she kept pulling him back. But quietly, she's been falling into line behind him. Um, she has a she has a sixth sense for adapting to the public mood, and I don't see why. Uh, that talent would fail her now. Um, but she did say one thing earlier on. Uh, she, months ago, she said, uh, if we can't adopt a friendly face to people who are coming from terrible, uh, ter- who have ter- experienced terrible uh, fates, well, that's not my country. And I think we might be seeing in the next couple of days where she'll try and claw back a little of that thing. Yes, there is. She, if, if I was advising her politically, I'd say what we had in our what, what we had in our leader in the Irish Times uh, today that there is no contradiction between punishing people who commit crimes and also being welcoming within reason to um, people who've suffered. And it's it's striking that balance. Uh, that's that's the the thin line she has to walk in the coming days. And of course, this is all grist to the mail of the far right, and particularly the Pegida uh, group, which was demonstrating in Cologne on, on, on Saturday, and there were clashes with the police then. Uh, they, they're claiming to have been vindicated on, on the migrant issue. Is there evidence that there is a swing towards them because of this? Not so far. Uh, I think Pegida is considered by many people damaged goods. There's an awful lot of ranting going on on Facebook, but I, it's very hard to know how serious that is. Um, the, there was a march last night in Leipzig with about uh, a thousand people. There, the, there's a local Pegida in Dresden, but in nearby Leipzig there was a march there. But there was there's also far right. Uh, riots and over 200 arrests. So I think a lot of people are, well, they might think, well, maybe Pegida has a point, but those people running Pegida are slightly odious. And so it's, there's no real sign that they're actually gaining in numbers. There's a lot of people barking away on Facebook, but I really don't know if that amounts to a lot. But And what you do see is uh, Merkel's uh, Bavarian allies, the people who are on the front line of the refugee crisis down in the south, they have slowly been moving over towards absorbing some of what would have been a year ago hard-right, extreme-right political positions. And it will be interesting to see if that then in turn has a knock-on effect on Merkel's own party. So Pegida itself isn't having a huge effect. Um, they've been putting out claims of foreigners raping races, uh, foreigners raping German women every day for the last year. So that they have now struck gold is more to do with statistics than reality. And I think a lot of people know that. But I think politicians would do well to be studying Facebook and uh, seeing, uh, just getting an idea of how angry people are and people here are furious. Thank you, Derek. You're listening to the Irish Times. And now to Tel Aviv. Officials feared the novel Border Life by Dorit Rabinian could encourage relationships between Jews and Arabs. Published in 2014, it's a semi-autobiographical story of an Israeli woman who falls in love with a Palestinian artist in New York. But the pair split up as she returns to Israel and he to the West Bank. Teachers asked to include the book in the high school curriculum, but senior education ministries officials blocked the move. Safir Cohen is the director in Israel of the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung, a German think tank closely affiliated to the German left party, Die Linke. Safir, are they missing anything? Is, is this great work of literature 
Uh, I gather the book was among the winners of the Bernstein Prize for Young Writers. The, the writer, uh, Mrs. Rabin Yan, is a very popular writer in Israel, and two of her former books have been taught or are taught today in, um, in Israeli schools. So it, it is, she's, quite, uh, she's probably the person you would take uh, to um, one of her books in order to um, teach uh, literature to, to pupils who are about between the age of 15 and 18. So in that sense, it does make sense uh, to take to take this book uh, and make it part of the cur- curriculum. Uh, the problem with the book, of course, is the content of the book, and that's where, uh, where uh, the ministry has decided not to take this book in, and the reasons are very clear. Uh, what the book does, it describes an intimate relationship between a Jew and a non-Jew, and in that sense, the official uh, um, the announcement of the ministry was that this endangers the Jewish identity and promotes uh, assimilation and intermarriage. And uh, with this ethnocratic idea of what Israel is, they have said this is not only a problematic book, but also a book that would bring children, pupils in Israel, to start assimilating and start uh, having, um, I don't know, relations with uh, with non-Jews. And that is something that the ministry does not want to promote. It does certainly seem to... uh give great store to the uh, effectiveness of a book and its message. But who, who's behind the ban? While teachers were still permitted to study the book, I gather, with their students, it won't be included in the final exams. But we see here the hand of Education Minister Naftali Bennett, who's the leader of the settlers and the far right in the cabinet. Yes. Uh, what we see today in Israel is that we have the most right-wing government ever in, in the history of Israel. And the... Uh, the Prime Minister Netanyahu is known to be a very hardliner right-winger, but he has much more right-wing people within his own uh, coalition. And Naftali Bennett is more or less the head of, of the more radical people within uh, the government. And these people include the Minister of Justice uh, and the Minister uh, Naftali Bennett, the Minister of Education. And does he have the support of, of Netanyahu? Uh, we don't know Netanyahu. Usually, what Netanyahu is, does is he tries to uh, keep this coalition going, and but uh, so we don't exactly know if he's for this specific law. But we do know that what he wants is to move Israel away from the idea of a liberal democracy, which might have an occupation somewhere else, into an ethnocratic Israel, an Israel in which uh, not all Israelis are the same, but in which the center of Israeli identity would be the Jewishness of the people, and less the democratic part of Israel. As we know, there are 20% of the Israeli population, of of Israeli citizens, I'm not talking about the West Bank, are Palestinians or Israeli Arabs. And what they're doing here is they're ousting these people out. They are excluding them from the idea of Israeliness. Israeliness, according to Netanyahu, and to a more extreme, in a more extreme way uh, of Mr. Bennett, is a Jewish state, and it's the state of the Jews, and 
this ethnic idea of we Jews as a nation, as an ethnic group, uh, we should remain pure, we should not intermarry, we should not have too many contacts with the outer world. That is this idea, this more or less, uh, we would call it in Europe, xenophobic idea, that is the center part of uh, Israeli identity, according to Netanyahu. And ethnic purity, then, is, is, a, is central to extreme Zionism in, in particular. Um, yes, I would say so. Uh, if we take a look at w- what's happening here, we have extreme, extreme, extreme Zionism, as we see it with Netanyahu, especially with Mr. Bennett. But Zionism all in all, uh, let's say it this way, in the past uh, 50, 70 years, the state of Israel has been, um, since the state of Israel has been founded, we have 20% uh, Palestinian, Palestinian population, but we have no intermarriage between Israeli Arab and Israeli Jews. So as a matter of fact, what we've seen here is practically uh, in Israel, there are no intermarriages between uh, Jews and, uh, and Palestinians. So it is, uh, and there is a sense that it is very, uh, it, that it is impossible, socially unacceptable to marry an Arab if you are Jewish. So even radical Jews in Israel don't intermarry with Palestinians. In the book, if we go back to the book, Mrs. Rab- Mrs. Rabinian's book, we see that the, she she uh, describes herself, I gather, as a proud Zionist. She would be a proud but left-wing liberal Zionist, I would say. But uh, the, the, the love affair happens, takes place not in Israel, but in New York. And when they come back, the, uh, they don't, they don't, uh, the relationship stops, and the, uh, the Palestinian man within this relationship, it's an Israeli-Jewish woman and a Palestinian man from the occupied territories, he dies. So that the, even the author herself didn't go very far with, uh, with, the, with the question of intermarriage and pluralism, because what her, the solution of the author is that the Palestinian dies, so that you don't have this extreme problem at the end of, okay, an Israeli and a Palestinian have met, they've fallen in love, they come back, and what happens then? So the, the story ends with him dying, so that there is no, you know, she doesn't have to really deal then later on with the question, um, yes, what happens if an Israeli and a Palestinian go on living here? So as a matter of fact, the answer of the author is a very Zionist one. The relationship is a love affair, Love affairs happen; they happen abroad. And but here, uh, when we come back to here, the problem is solved by him dying, and not by his, the, the two of them confronting their societies. One of the the things that is most toxic to to uh, uh, Jewish uh, uh, spokesmen for for Israel is is the description of uh, the, the Israeli state as an apartheid state in which separate development is, is the norm. And yet it seems that this precisely, this story precisely illustrates that separate development is very much the purpose. Um, yes, I mean, the, 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 it's very clear that there is the idea of separation. Now, I don't know if you can, if you can say that apartheid in South Africa and here are the same, but I don't think, I don't think that's the point. That's just you using slogans. The, the, the question here within Israel is, can Israel become a plural, pluralistic democracy or can it remain a pluralistic democracy while the occupation is still going on? And that's really, as a matter of fact, I think the greatest problem because within Israel we have seen proce- a process of integration of the Palestinian minority. Uh, we have seen a new thing in the past 20 years, like in Ireland, of um, 
uh, immigration for the first time of immigration uh, into this country, non-Jewish immigration, mind you, of especially African uh, uh, refugees from Africa, Eritrea, and Sudan. So this society here has been becoming more pluralistic on the one hand. Uh, on the other hand, you had the occupation going on within the, in the occupied territories, and there we see the problem that the, this occupation, over there there is a separation between Jews and non-Jews. There is, um, it is more or less a colonial system we see uh, in work over there, and this has been damaging more and more, or uh, tainting more and more Israeli society, and has been changing Israeli society to a place where today such a novel cannot be read in schools. Thank you very much indeed, Safria. Next to China and Clifford Coonan. China regards the independent island of Taiwan as a separated province that it wants back. It aims hundreds of missiles at the island and has never renounced the use of force to bring it back under Beijing's control. Ties between China and Taiwan have warmed under the government of President Ma Yingjiao, who took office in 2008. The years of engagement, however, have not stopped jobs and manufacturing migrating abroad, nor have they bolstered the economy from recession. Taiwan has in reality only become more dependent on the mainland. Clifford, set the scene for this election. Well, basically what we're seeing at the moment is a very hard-fought election campaign, as you said. Um, the Kuomintang's current, the sitting president, Ma Yingzhou, um, isn't allowed to run again. So um, they have a candidate called Eric Chu. And he's up against Tsai Ying-wen, who is a very popular figure. She's for the Democratic Progressive Party. Uh, and we have a third candidate, James Sung, from the People's First Party. The reason why this is very important is because um, should Tsai Ing-wen win, as many people expect, it will change the way that um, the self-ruled island ha works with um, mainland China. And it could lead to increased tensions in the region, which are already running pretty high because of the North Korean missile test in the past few days, and also because of China's territorial ambitions in the South China Sea. So what we're expecting is that should uh, Tsai Ing-wen um, secure the vote, it's quite a complicated voting procedure, not unlike Ireland's, except there is some element of first past the post and then um, a proportional representation system. And it's, it's divided very much between the north of the island and the south of the island. But should she secure um, a win, then we're going to see a lot more negotiations about more autonomy for the island, which is something that the, um, the Chinese are not going to, to want to hear. A poll sponsored by the nationalists has put Tsai support comfortably ahead of support for Chu. Uh, she, she seems to be getting support from young people in particular. That's right. I mean, like many places, almost like, like mainland China, um, Taiwan, um, even though it doesn't have a one-child policy like they had in mainland China, is also experiencing a growing population. They've, they've had an almost de facto one-child one policy because people, it's a very low fertility rate. What you're seeing then is that um, the, the KMT, who've traditionally been very strong in Taiwan, haven't been able to drum up support among people below 40. Um, and this is somewhere where Tsai Ing-wen has, um, has been successful at getting this um, support. A lot of people feel that um, the DPP also represents Taiwan's interests better. Young people 
like this sort of autonomy that, that you see and that they have and that they enjoy in, in this self-ruled island. And they don't necessarily want to see closer relations with China um, because they don't feel they've really benefited from it um, in the way that they had hoped maybe 10 years ago when, when Ma Yingzhou was first elected to power. And that's despite the fact that more and more uh, contacts and economic links have been established with the, with the mainland and, and many uh, Taiwanese businesses actually work uh, on the mainland. That's right. I mean, there's about a million, at least a million, possibly a lot more uh, Taiwanese working here in the mainland, living here and working here in the mainland. Um, I think what people feel is that um, Ma Yingzhou is prepared to go too far in China's favor. Um, and they, want to, they don't want to lose the autonomy that Taiwan has. And they feel that maybe Taiwan needs to be a bit tougher in, in how it approaches China. Um, a couple of months ago, we had a meeting between um, between uh, President Xi Jinping of mainland China and between Ma Yingzhou in Singapore, and they shook hands for what was an historic moment. And while that was seen as being a, a signal of, of warmer ties and of possibly growing um, more peace in the region, a lot of people in Taiwan itself weren't happy with the way that um, that that this took place because they feel that um, that the autonomy that they enjoy is not being given. Um, quite the, it's not being given a chance. I see that um, there have been a number of takeover bids uh, from mainland Chinese companies uh, for uh, Taiwanese companies. And a, and a DPP MP has said that China has said it costs less to absorb uh, China, China via economic means than military force. And that's what they're doing now. Is that perception widespread? Yeah, I mean, the growing economic ties have basically rendered a lot of the political debate, um, if not redundant, they've certainly um, thrown it into a very different context because um, for most people on both sides of the of the Strait of Taiwan, uh, the priority is economic. And um, it's the fact they have the same language. Um, they come from very, um, most of the people living on Taiwan, um, their parents or their grandparents, uh, came over from, from the mainland in 1949. Um, you've got a lot of people going over, older people particularly, um, leaving Taiwan and going, uh, not leaving Taiwan, but um, traveling from Taiwan to the mainland to visit their ancestral homes. Um, there are all kinds of links that are there that, that operate outside the political sphere, and the economic links are, are certainly chief among them. And this is going to make for a very tight election. It will indeed, and um, it's going to be—it's quite bitterly fought. I mean, the, the executive yuan, which is the, the um, Taiwanese parliament, um, is famous for fistfights between the, the two parties and uh, between delegates from the two parties. Um, the feelings run extremely high. Um, one thing that's very interesting, of course, being based in Beijing, when you go to Taipei, just to watch Chinese people vote is quite a novelty. Um, and um, in some ways, it shows that you know that there's no. Um, that democracy certainly works in Chinese, within Chinese culture. Um, but uh, on the other hand, um, the, the mainland is going to be watching this, thinking that, um, that basically if they see signs of, of dissent or, or move towards independence, which is something which the um, mainland China is absolutely um, not prepared to tolerate, um, and that could really ratchet up the tensions if Tsai Ying then, when she comes to power, starts saying that Taiwan must be independent, that um, because it is still within this one China, China policy that both sides have agreed to to, um, to recognize, whereby Taiwan, even though it's self-ruled, um, it can never really call itself a country. We've seen this at the Olympics. We see this at various 
particularly at international events, um, and also in the fact that um, Taiwan is recognized by very few countries diplomatically. So um, any moves by Taiwan to, to really bolster um, this sort of independent movement towards independence, uh, Beijing would take a very dim view of that. Thank you, Clifford. That's all today. Thank you for listening, and my thanks to Clifford Coonan, Safrir Cohen and Derek Skelly, and to producer Declan Conlon and Gary White on sound.